Good morning, Grace Life. Merry Christmas. <laughs> it is a joy to be here. Uh, I'm going to read my passage in just a moment. Um, man, this is a monumental day for us. I've been really looking forward to this, installing these new men who are going to serve you in the spirit of Christ and are going to equip you for the work of the ministry and are going to unite your hearts in faith and are going to protect you. So just want to pause and just let the seriousness of this and the, and the celebratory nature of this wash over us. And then we'll jump into this passage in Ephesians 4, okay? Heavenly Father, thank you so much. You are a God of order. You are a, a God who gives gifts, who gives good gifts, gifts that are necessary, gifts that are deep and profound and meaningful, Lord. And when we are thinking spiritually and clearly, we acknowledge those gifts, Lord. We receive those gifts. We treasure those gifts. And we want those gifts to be utilized by you in an efficient way, Lord, not, not through, as we heard that quote, professionalism, that's an agenda that is set by the world, but a spiritual agenda that is set by you. I pray for these men, as I have many times, Lord, and for our congregation today to see them, to affirm them, to receive them and love them and pray for them. Thank you for this uh, magnificent opportunity that you've given us as a church to just slow down and, and remind ourselves, what is the job description of an elder? What's the job description of a pastor? Why are we here? What, why, why have you given us to the church? What is our responsibility and obligation? And I pray those things would become clear and glorious today. In the name of Jesus Christ, I pray. Amen. Well, it's Christmas time, and when we think about Christmas, if we're honest, and if we're childlike, what do we think about? Gifts, thank you. We think about gifts, we think about presents. We love presents, don't we? We love to give them, but we really like to receive them, don't we? Well, God is a good God, and he loves to give good gifts too. And kind of in keeping with our Advent series, you know, Advent is just a special word. It's not just slapped on hospitals, you know. Advent actually means the arrival of somebody significant and noteworthy, and that's what we celebrate every Advent season. We usually take the whole month of December, every Sunday in December, and celebrate a different dynamic of, of Advent. Uh, you know, the last Advent sermon that I preached was, was kind of strange. It was on Psalm 2. Uh, today is going to be a little bit strange, too, but that's okay. You guys always embrace the weirdness of grace life. So today is going to be an Advent message in this way. We're going to talk about some Christmas gifts that God is going to reach down today and give to Grace Life Church. And I want to do my best to take this passage I'm going to read in just a minute in Ephesians chapter 4 and try and reason with you and argue with you from Scripture why elders and pastors are God's gifts to us, why they're good gifts. Um, and hopefully you leave here with a, a fresh perspective, maybe just a reminder for most of you probably. But that's what today is about. Um, when God gives gifts, he gives his best. And obviously the greatest gift that God gave us was not um, shepherds, it was the shepherd, right? The greatest gift that God gave us was, was Jesus Christ. He is the greatest gift. He's the most valuable gift. He's the most costly gift. He's the gift that we needed the most and didn't even recognize that and didn't even want him initially until God, through the Holy Spirit, opened our eyes. And helped us see our, our, our great need for him to be our substitute and to save us and rescue us from our sin. But 
God didn't stop there. When he gave us Jesus, he also gave us a gift giver. And this passage is going to quote from Psalm 68, and it talks about, it's prophesying the resurrection, and it says, when Christ ascended, then that means more than just his ascension, you know, in Acts chapter 1, where he was caught up in the clouds. It means his ascension from the grave. When he walked out of that empty tomb, resurrected and risen Lord, sovereign uh, king of all creation, and he ascended up to the throne of God, he gave gifts to mankind. And Ephesians chapter 4 is going to capitalize on that. So turn there with me. Ephesians chapter 4. If you have a Bible or if you don't, we bailed you out. We're going to slap it up here on the overhead. And we're going to be reading starting in verse, I think verse 9. Let's see. 7. Thank you. There we go. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 7. And look, I know we're just kind of parachuting in from out of nowhere, not giving you a context. We haven't been going through this book. This book you're going to find has a lot of similarities to the book of Romans that we're going through. But we're going to parachute down into this, and then we're going to jump back up, and I'm going to give you the 30,000-foot view. This is not an in-depth exposition in any sense. Uh, this is just focusing on some, some key themes of what it means for God to give the gift of qualified leaders to his church. All right? So starting in verse 7, you can... You can follow along with me. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, and this is the quote from Psalm 68, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and he gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean but that he had also descended into the lower regions of the earth. And this is talking about how costly this gift was. When Jesus took captivity captive, it's talking about principalities and powers, malicious beings, fallen angels, demons. He conquered them. He came to shatter the works of the devil, First John says. And he did that. He did that efficiently. And in verse 10, he who descended is one who also ascended far above all heavens that he might fill all things. And then here's the part of the passage I really want to focus on. Verse 11, and he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of ministry, for building up the body of Christ, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, verse 14, so that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. So in this passage, the Apostle Paul is just singling out some of the gifts that God gave to the church. Some of the gifts. This is not a complete or an exhaustive list by any stretch. It doesn't include deacons. It does, uh, it, it does mention the fact that all of you have a gift from the Holy Spirit. We've talked about that before here. When you became a Christian, blood-bought child of God, you received the Holy Spirit, and he, the Holy Spirit, gave you a spiritual gift. 
He gave you a grace gift, and that grace gift is supposed to be used by you to build up and edify and make other Christians stronger. That's one of the reasons we have community groups and we have D groups and we do all the things during the week that we do because it's really impossible on any given Sunday morning for all of you to fulfill all the one another's in the New Testament. There's some 55 one another's depending on how you count. And that's really significant. God gave all of you gifts and to the extent that you're using those gifts the right way really will be kind of a barometer for whether or not you have qualified leaders who are fulfilling their job description, because part of our job description, I'm going to show you in a minute, is to equip you, and that mean, that word actually means to furnish you completely, to train you up, to help you use your gifts in an effective and an efficient way so that the body is growing up together. This passage refers to the body of Christ as like this living, breathing organism. There's all these beautiful metaphors in the Bible for the church. It's a building, it's a body, it's a bride, it's a family, it's a field, it's a flock, but this has this idea of like this vine that's growing and it's supposed to be healthy, it's supposed to be mature, it's supposed to be strong. And so the gifts that God gives is to that end so that those things are happening. That's what qualified leadership when they're functioning the way they're supposed to, that's what their job description is. So pastors, this passage says, aren't just gifted, they are God's gifts too. You're, they're, they're human gifts. We have spiritual gifts and we also have human gifts. And what this passage is honing in on really, if you've heard all those words, and they're similar in their meaning, we don't believe that there are still apostles today uh, or prophets today. There's a discussion to be had on how those gifts may or may function throughout the New Testament age and the church age. But what Paul is focusing on here are people who are gifted to articulate and defend the gospel. So these are men who have been selected and gifted with a serving gift of articulating, speaking, preaching, unpacking for you uh, the good news of Jesus' rescue and defending that when it needs to be defended, when it comes under attack by heresy and false teachers and misunderstandings, and it certainly will. So that's what this passage is talking about. The men that we're going to recognize today, the four men, are God's gifts to us. And so part of, what, part of what I want to do is show you why they are, and that's our outline for today. Three reasons why elders and pastors are gifts to you. First is because they equip the saints. They equip the saints for the work of the ministry. Secondly, they unite the saints. When they're equipping you for the work of the ministry, there's this little clause that says, until they reach the unity of the faith. So if we're doing our job right and fulfilling our responsibility to equip you, you are becoming more united. We are actually unifying you, a unity that's, that's a Siamese twin of the faith. And the third thing is they protect the saints. They protect you from false teaching. They protect you from being naive. They protect you from being vulnerable to the whims of Satan and the attacks of Satan. They protect you from stunted growth. So we're going to talk about all those things. I always give you a little bit of a preview in case I don't get as far as I want to get, right? So I just basically preached the, the sermon to you, but we're not going to close yet, all right? Because I want to say something else. You know, I always have like a little, I want to share my heart with you. As I've thought about this, and I got I to gotta be honest with you. You guys love it when I'm honest with you. This is kind of an incredibly awkward passage to preach. Do you know why? Because I'm an elder. I'm an ordained gospel minister, and I'm your lead pastor here. And when I'm reading this passage and understanding what the Holy Spirit is saying through this, do you know what it's saying? I'm saying, check this out, all right? I'm saying, 
I'm God's gift to you. <laughs> now, now listen, it's 2023, right? This is like the age of, of everyone's talking about narcissism. It's an incredibly awkward thing to preach on. So I've had to pray, God, give me strengths where they don't mishear me, but they, they do hear what you're telling them. And I think maybe it will help you if I say this. And, and this is from my heart, and God knows the truth of this. I have served in awesome churches, served in many churches, even since I've been ordained, where the people respected authority, where they loved their pastors, where they served them well. And I don't want to take anything away from those churches, but I got to tell you this, this, this. We're about to enter our 10th year as a church plant here. And I have never, and my wife will affirm this too, and I know these men will affirm this. I have never, probably get choked up, that's okay though. I have never in my life served in a church that has honored and respected and loved and cherished and appreciated their pastors more than I have Grace Life Church. And that's not me trying to flatter you. That is the God-honest truth. You guys have loved my family. You have loved the family of the leaders here. You have welcomed us. You know, there's a passage in Hebrews. Here, let me read this passage to you. There's a passage in Hebrews chapter 13, and it says this. It says, remember your leaders, those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. And then a few verses later, it says this, obey your leaders and submit to them. People cringe when they hear that. People in church cringe when they hear that. Maybe they've seen a very poor example of that. But obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. This is serious stuff. Keeping watch over your souls as those who will have to give an account. Every elder we're going to install today, one day will stand before Almighty God and will give an account on how well we kept watch over your souls. But check this out. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. For that would be of no advantage to you. And then he says, pray for us. This is a, I could, I could preach just on this passage today. But I want to say this, you guys at no point, well, you know, very short, far and few between points, have I ever felt this overwhelming burden and groaning of being the pastor of this church. So I want to say on behalf of our leaders, behalf of my family, thank you. Thank you so much. I've got six children, and being a preacher's kid, it's not easy. You guys have made it so easy for my kids to feel like this is their family, and they don't all have all these pressures and stresses upon them. They love it. They love coming to church. They love coming to youth. Uh, when I think about shepherding, of course, there's burdens that come along with shepherding, but I don't groan when I think about this church. You guys have helped me. I went away last weekend. I promise we're going to get to the text. I took a break last weekend to go into the deer woods with my boys. And again, I'll be honest with you. The first two and a half years of this church, I would have not even been able to sit in a deer stand without shaking. Not because I've got buck fever, but because I would have been so nervous about what's happening here because I'm not here. And do you know why? Man, you know why? Because this church was my life. It was my life. And, and don't say amen. That's not a good thing. That's not a good thing. This church is not my life. Jesus is my life. And he's your life too. And when we put things, good things, in the center and they crowd out Jesus and, and he becomes marginal or... <laughs> or even optional, bad things happen. So the first two years of shepherding here, not because of you, but because of me, it was, it was heavy two years. I couldn't go away. I could not be in the pulpit. If I wasn't 
you know, our community group started to grow and I couldn't be everywhere. And I thought I was Jesus, really. I thought like, man, if I'm not there, things are going to go askew. Things are going to go awry. And it took a mature and growing and healthy congregation like you to kind of put me in my place and say, hey, you know, Jesus is a much, <laughs> Jesus is a much better sinner than you are, Pastor. God's going to build his church and the gates of hell will not prevail against it. So let's put Jesus back in the center and let the chips fall where they may. And I'm thankful to say that's where I'm at right now where this church is not my life, Jesus is, and that's better for everybody. So thank you. Thank you that you've made it really easy, and I would even say fun. It's a joy to shepherd this congregation, man. So I wanted to get that out of the way. Why are elders God's gift to the church? Three reasons. Number one, elders equip the saints. Check it out. Verse 7. But grace was given to each one of us according to the measure of Christ's gift. Therefore, it says, when he ascended on high, he led a host of captives and gave gifts to men. And saying he ascended, what does it mean? But that he also descended into the lower regions of the earth. He who descended is the one who also ascended far above the heavens that he might fill all things. I should have just jumped forward to this verse. Here it is. And he what? Gave. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ. Why are elders and pastors and shepherds gifts to you? Because they are here to put the ball in your hands and free you up and empower you to actually do the work of the ministry. I know some people have the misconception for lots of different reasons that pastors do all the work of the ministry. We don't. We don't. You know what we do? Our, our primary job description is to equip you to do the work of the ministry and to do it well, to do it efficient, to put the ball in your court. You know, a lot of people have this ongoing argument, and they have for the last 10 years or so, who is the greatest basketball player who's ever lived? Now, what's the answer to that? No, don't answer that out loud. It's, it's, it boils down to two people, right? Two people. Is it Michael Jordan or is it LeBron James? And you know, the answer to that question is, what do you really need in an MVP basketball player? What do you need? Do you need a person who's always going to take the shot no matter what? Get the ball in his hands. He's going to make the winning shot. He's going to get the glory. He's going to be the hero. Well, then hands down, it's Michael Jordan. He's your guy, right? If, however, you're looking for a team player who's not looking to be the hero, he's not looking to steal the glory, maybe not all of it. Every illustration breaks down at some point, right? These guys are celebrities, man. They get paid millions of dollars to be the hero. But if you're looking for a team player, somebody who's looking to give the assist, then LeBron James is your guy. What's he looking to do? He's looking to put the ball in your hands and for you to take the shot. That's what, when pastors and elders are functioning the way they're supposed to, that's their job description. That's what they do. They want to help you discover the spiritual gift that God has given you, develop that gift, and then deploy it into the body of Christ so that the body grows up and, in, and, and is built up and is strong and is functioning the right way. Are you tracking with me? Is that making sense? That's their job. The men that we're installing today, it's a gift to you because they're going to equip you. They're not going to take responsibilities away from you. They're going to put responsibilities in your hands and they're going to help you. Their eyes are going to be on you. They're going to be watching over your soul the way Hebrews 13 says. And that means that they see something that's concerning or something that's dangerous for you, something that's going to harm you in the long run, that God's going to fill them with the courage and the hope and the security to come and say, hey, brother, hey, sister, let me turn you. You're, you're looking away from Christ. You're heading in a dangerous direction. 
you're sitting under some really bad and dangerous and toxic teaching, and you're going to harm yourself and you're going to harm others. Let me help you do this the right way. I did something earlier this year. Because of all the other things I said about you, ha, this is funny, man. It took me nine years to, to, to feel uh, for my insecurities to go away so I could join a gym. I was so afraid. Some, I'm dead serious, guys. Your pastor's messed up. <laughs> I was so afraid somebody would see me at a gym and be like, he's a pastor. What's, he should be studying or he should be counseling somebody. What's he doing at the gym? Now I've got a church. They like it. They want me to be at the gym. They want me to be healthy so I can stay alive and be strong, right? So I did something earlier this year I haven't done in decades. I joined a gym, a little bitty gym just down the road from my house, and I love it there. It's got a great gym culture. People care about each other. People love each other. I've even seen a few of you there. And I love this gym because the seasoned people that work out at this gym, they're always on the lookout for the rookies. And I know next month it's especially going to be the case, all the people that get that you know, get that New Year's resolution, get in there and get on that equipment. Um, they're always looking out for people who are using the equipment the wrong way. You know, that equipment, if you use it right, it will make you strong. It will. It will strengthen your body. It will make you more limber and flexible. It will help you flourish and thrive physically. And I would even say maybe socially, there's all kinds of connections there. But if you misuse that equipment, it can actually hurt you and break the equipment. And it's just hard to watch <laughs> sometimes, Right. So they're always looking for somebody that's tangled up in the cables or one of those embarrassing moments when you go to the, to the machine. You're not comfortable with free weights, so you go to this machine and you're actually, it's upside down the way you're using it, right? And in the same way as I think about elders and I think about pastors, that's what we're supposed to do. We're supposed to equip you. We're supposed to help you see that, hey, this is the gift that the Holy Spirit has given you. And this is the way it's to be used. You're using it the wrong way or you're not developing it. We want to help you do that. We want to help you do that better. That's our job, to equip the saints. As my buddy Jeff Eckert likes to say, pastoral ministry isn't about being ministry, but freeing ministry. We don't do all the work. We help you come alongside us and others and do the work of the ministry. Our, our job is to facilitate, to empower, and to free you up. Help you use your gifts so that you're furthering the mission, so that you are reaching outsiders, so that you're becoming like Jesus because you're beholding him, right? We're transformed into the image of Christ from one level of glory to the next as we're beholding him. That's how we're ultimately equipped. Pastors are not intended to be like Michael Jordan, highlighting their gifts, using you to build their own platform on. Oh my goodness, man, that's a terrible misuse of the gift and the calling of God upon the lives of men. We're supposed to be like LeBron James. Put the ball in your hands, clear the way for you to take the shot. That's what elders do. Now, in order for us to free you up and empower you and clear the way, that means we use our leadership. We use the God-given authority that God has given us. And I know that's another cringe word. Submission, leadership, authority, those are cringe words in 2023 because of all the misuses. You know, Satan only counterfeits valuable things. Did you know that? Anything you see perverted or distorted is something that Satan has honed in on. He knows that's valuable and that's useful. That comes straight from the throne in heaven. So he's going to pervert that and twist that as much as he can. That's why you see scandals and abuses and everything like that. But in no way does that mean we have this permission to dismiss that altogether. No, we got to go back and, and figure out well, what kind of authority do pastors have and how do they use it. Jonathan Lehman wrote a great book on church authority this year. It's from Nine Marks Ministry. It's called Authority. And he said something really helpful in the book. This is what he said. Check this out. He said, good authority says, let me be the platform on which you build your life. 
I'll supply you, fund you, resource you, guide you. Just listen to me. Good authority binds in order to loose, corrects in order to teach, trims in order to grow, disciplines in order to train, legislates, legislates in order to build, judges in order to redeem, studies in order to innovate. Good authority loves, and check this out, this is the boom quote, good authority gives, good authority generally passes out power. Get that? Let me read that last part. Good authority generally passes out power. And you say, I don't know about that. What's the example of that? What did Jesus come and do? He laid aside his lofty throne in heaven and he came and became vulnerable, didn't he? He did not consider it. He did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped and held on to. He emptied himself. And you know, we, we adopt that posture too. We come and we use our gifts to serve you. We lay down our lives to serve the flock. That's what the good shepherd does. The good shepherd lays down his life for the flock. And that means that good authority general, generally passes out power. We want to put the ball in your hands. It doesn't mean we deprive ourselves of the authority God invested with us. That's a derived and delegated authority, right? It means we use it for the benefit of the body of Christ. So that's what an elder does. That's a pastor. He fulfills his calling by equipping the saints to do their own ministry better so that we can grow deep, so that we can stand tall, so that we can reach wide and stay on our mission and stay true to our vision. That's the first thing. The second thing, elders, you do is unite the saints. They unite the saints. Check out the rest of that passage there. And he gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers to equip the saints for the work of the ministry for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ. A faithful pastor, a faithful elder, a faithful shepherd is always seeking to do two things in the hearts of his people, to foster two critically important things in the hearts of his people. One of those is unity with others, and the thing that that flows from is knowledge of the Son of God, knowledge of Christ. That's what I'm after. I'm after you having this intimate, relational knowledge of Jesus Christ that's going to, in turn, uh, flow into unity. Not uniformity, where we're all the same, we all love sushi and walks on the beach and we have the same hobbies and read the same books. Not that. It means shared life together. It means you have this instant love for the body of Christ that wasn't there before. I love in Acts chapter 2, there's this section, verses 42 through 47, and it talks about um, after those 3,000 people were converted and they were virtual strangers, and it lists all the cities they came from. They wouldn't have known each other until the day of Pentecost when they came together, the Holy Spirit fell on them, right? Breathed new life, opened their eyes, they repented, they can were converted, they were baptized, and then there's this description. It says, now, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and doctrine, the breaking of bread, and fellowship. And it says this, it says, and they had all things together and in common. And each of them sacrificed as any need became known to them. This is virtual strangers, and they were selling their homes, selling their properties to meet the needs of these people they had no knowledge of just one day before. Why? Because they had this instant unity that the Holy Spirit created that flowed out of their comprehension of who Jesus is and what he did for them. And here's a challenge and a question. Do you feel that unity that God is creating 
and that the Holy Spirit is fostering in your heart unity for the body of Christ, you're not on some mission to just find drama or create conflict. Man, you want to put those fires out. Psalm chapter 16 says, as for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. Do you feel that way about the body of Christ? I would submit to you, if you do, maybe that means our elders are, are really functioning the right way, because that's what we're trying to foster in you, is unity of the faith. That grammatically in Greek, it literally means the unity that flows from faith. So if you don't have proper doctrine of Christ, knowledge of Christ, intimate relationship with Jesus, you're not going to have that unity. It's going to be counterfeit. It's not going to work when things get tough. Unity is going to be tested. It's always going to be tested. Charles Spurgeon said this, talking about this unity, and he was a brand new convert. He said this. He said, I felt that I could not be happy without fellowship with the people of God. I wanted to be wherever they were, and if anybody ridiculed them, I wished to be ridiculed with them. And if people had an ugly name for them, I wanted to be called by that ugly name too. You know what that is? That's a deep fellowship, that's shared life, and that's a united mission. The Holy Spirit creates that, and it's the job of elders and shepherds when we are equipping you for the work of the ministry to foster that unity. Because we're articulating and defending the gospel, the good news about who Jesus is and what he came to do on your behalf. Do you have that unity? Do you see that welding up in your heart? Maybe the people at Grace Life around you in high school, you would have never sat at the cafeteria table that they sat at. But now that you're a member of the body of Christ and we're a family, we are united. We have the most important thing in common. That means, listen guys, this transcends what side of the tracks you were born on, your economic status, your skin color, your hobbies. It tra those things are superficial in the grand scheme of things. Just look at the disciples. One of them was a political zealot when Christ called them. And one of them was a tax collector. Uh-oh, <laughs> you get them in the same room, they're going to kill each other. But they had unity because of Christ. He united them. Christ was able to unite, you know, uneducated fishermen and political zealots and tax collectors. And the church is the same way. Man, you look around. If you just look, just do that. Look around, man. Look around this room today. You guys came from some of the strangest places and have the strangest vocations, but yet there's this deep unity, and I feel it. I feel it spiritually here on Sunday. There is love that's present here, and that's because of Christ. And I want to foster that as a pastor. I know these elders do too. I want to protect that. So a good pastor not only fosters that unity, but he wants to protect the very thing that creates it, and that is an intimate knowledge of Jesus. That is so vital. Listen, guys. I want to be careful the way I say this. Grace Life Church has to be careful, man, because we love the Bible. It's inspired. It's inerrant. It's our final authority. It's our rule for life and godliness, right? But, you say, oh, I don't like that conjunction after that statement. But, but what? But the Bible is a means to an end. It's not the end. You know, you can take the Bible. It's good. It's a gift. It's God's revealed will, and you can take that Bible and you can elevate it even above God himself. You say, is such a thing possible? It is possible. It is possible a group of people that you would, would know by name from the New Testament did that. You know who, what their names were? The Pharisees. They knew everything about the Old Testament, but they had no love in their hearts because they didn't know God. That's what Jesus even accused them of. He said, you search the scriptures, for in them you think you find eternal life. But you do not have the love of God in you. 
So I want to be careful that we remember that. The, 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 the type of knowledge, here, let me read this. Just so you know this is coming from the Bible, not Tommyology, okay? He says here, until we all attain to the unity of faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God. Knowledge. You know, there's a word for knowledge, and it's, and it's gnosis. Or, you know, you hear the word gnostic. He's an agnostic, no knowledge. Or he's a gnostic. Uh, put your nerd hat on for a minute. Sometimes in Greek, the language the New Testament was written in, if you want to intensify a word, you slap a preposition on the front of it. It intensifies it. It's like saying very. You know, Americans do that a lot. Were you a good boy? I was very good, right? Preposition. So he doesn't say gnosis here. He says epinosis. He's saying, so let me read that again. Until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the super knowledge of the Son of God, or the, what he's saying is intimate knowledge of the Son of God. What is the goal and the purpose of the Bible? Just so you can know a bunch of theology or know a bunch of verses or know the kings of Judah in order, <laughs> or so you can know Christ, so that you can know Christ and have an intimate, vital relationship with him that's going to preserve and create and protect that unity. That's the whole goal of the Bible. If you forget that, you will turn into a critical person. You will become religious, and you're going to get cynical, and you're going to start drawing lines in the sand, and you're going to find yourself despising people and being condescending toward people. It will happen. It will happen. That's why unity and epinosis of the Son of God are so critically important and linked together. Without the one, you don't have the other. You can't have the other. It's impossible. So that's the second role that God gave elders and pastors to do. It's, it's to unite the body of Christ. Unite the body of Christ. I had some examples here. You know, there's three times we, we went through the Gospel of Mark here a few years ago, and you don't find very often when it says God got angry, G, or excuse me, Jesus got angry, there's three times in the Gospel of Mark that Jesus got angry, and it was times when people that had just built up knowledge and facts about who they thought God was and from the scriptures, and they began to block people and despise people that needed him. Remember those three times? One of them was when a man with a withered hand came on the Sabbath into the synagogue, and Jesus saw him and knew the condition that he was in, and it says that he looked around the room, and he became angry because he knew everyone in there was trying to test him to see if he would heal that man on the Sabbath. They didn't want him to. They said, hey, if you need to get healed, go and get healed on the other six days of the week. The Sabbath is for, is for rest, and Jesus grew angry at them. Somebody that needed the miraculous, supernatural healing power of Jesus, they tried to block them because of all their knowledge. So they had knowledge but no unity, no love, right? Second one was the one you're familiar with, let the little children come to me, right? You know who he was rebuking there? His disciples. So it's not just Pharisees and Sadducees, it can be us too, guys. We can forget the main thing. Jesus wanted to bless the children. He wanted them to be given direct access to him. And then the third one was in Mark 11 when Jesus cleansed the temple because the court of the Gentiles, that would be the place where foreigners like us would come to encounter God. It would be a place of prayer. We could connect with God and have our sins forgiven and pray. But they had set it up like a family Christian bookstore or something, you know. It was, it was for profit only. And Jesus came in there and he was very angry when he looked around. And he took a whip and he drove out the animals and cleared the place. Man, I would have liked to have been there and seen that. Why? Because all these people had all this knowledge and facts about God, but they forgot the main point. They were blocking people and, and 
jamming up people's access to get to God. That can happen. So pastors are called to unite people and to equip people. And here's the third thing. Elders are called to protect the saints. I'm going to read the last part of that verse. All of this, the equipping and the unity and the intimate knowledge of Christ is all for a purpose. Check this out. Listen to how beautifully this reads together. So that. Why do all these things? So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes, rather speaking the truth in love, we are to grow up in every way into him who is the head, into Christ, from whom the whole body, joined and held together by every joint with which it is equipped, when each part is working properly, makes the body grow so that it builds itself up in love. That means we are protecting you so that you won't be naive, so that your growth won't be stunted, so that you won't be in immature, you won't be in drama, you won't be in perpetual conflict, you'll be healthy, you'll be growing, you'll be flourishing, you'll be strong. That's what elders are called to do. They're called to foster that kind of growth and protect that kind of growth. Protect you from false teaching, protect you from legalism, protect you from letting something else start to crowd out Jesus in the center of your life. We're to protect you from mission hijack of this church. We're the insiders who exist for the outsiders. We met the other night as, as staff and elders to just remind ourselves, what is our vision? You know, Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, in Proverbs 29, 18, he said, without a vision, the people, what? Perish. And that word perish in Hebrew, it doesn't mean they're destroyed. It literally means they're let loose. They're let loose. If you don't have a vision, you're going to stumble all over yourself. And this church is going to be utter chaos because everyone's got a mission. Everyone's got a vision, Right? If you don't have a vision, I guarantee you, just wait, somebody else will come along and they'll give you a vision for your life, and it may be a bad one. So part of our job as elders and shepherds is to protect the vision of this church we believe God gave us, and that is to keep Jesus at the center. We are a church that wants to make disciples, who plant churches, who make disciples. That's our goal. That's always been the goal. That's front and center. We want to see you apprenticing under Jesus following Jesus, creating and protecting healthy rhythms in your life so that you can grow into his likeness. It is so easy, guys, to slide. Very, Satan is so crafty. It can happen so easily that we just show up and, Brent, as we were talking about one night, we just show up and we're doing church work. I forget who said it now. Somebody can throw the name out, shout the name out. Maybe it was Leonard Ravenhill. He said, so many, or A.W. Tozer, one of those guys, he said, I'm convinced that, holy, or that churches have worked themselves into a frenzy, and were the, the Holy Spirit to withdraw himself, they could continue to do the things they're doing efficiently, but without him. Man, that was like a, man, it was, it was just like an insult to what the church had become. We're so efficient, we're so professional, we're working so hard, but somehow or another, like Joseph and Mary, we lost Jesus, right? Where is he? Where did he go? We forgot why we're even here. It's a true story, guys. Check this out. My, <laughs> my wife loves food. Um, I can say that. You, you've seen my wife. She's, my metabolism's crazy. I wish I had it. She loves food. She loves food. She loves hamburgers. Now, I like to cook. I'm not that great of a cook. But my mother, and she's watching, hi, mom, I love you. Thank you for all you ever taught me. My mom taught me to make a hamburger, a good hamburger, the right way. Not on a grill where all the stuff's falling through. Don't do that. And an iron skillet, a cast iron skillet where all the juices marinate together. I know you haven't had lunch. I apologize. 
So way back in the day, my wife was pregnant. She was tired. We had skipped lunch, I think. I don't know what was going on. We were all ravenously hungry. And I said, hey, it's hamburger night. Daddy's got dinner. I'm going to make dinner tonight. It's going to be good. So, man, I, I made like, it had to have been half-pound patties. Mixed Worcestershire sauce in there, seasoning, breadcrumbs, eggs. Oh, it was beautiful. I went and got some, uh, some BOGO buns from Publix that were shiny. I toasted them, put butter on them, put them in the oven. And then I got out all the fixings, man. I got the best cheese. I got some onions that I diced up, ketchup, mayo, mustard, lettuce. My wife loves to drag a burger through the garden. And I said, honey, you just wait. In the, you wait. What did I say? Said, said something wrong. Anyway, she loves to drag it through the garden. So anyway, she was in the other room. I said, I, I'm going to serve you last. All the other kids were served. And man, I worked so hard on this hamburger. And I doctored it up. It was a thing of beauty. You should have seen this thing. I brought it to her. She was salivating. She ate that hamburger in about 20 seconds. I've never seen anything like it. And then I asked her, I said, honey, how was that hamburger? She said, that's probably, honey, am I lying? I know pastors embellish things, guys. She's right here. She said, that's probably the best hamburger I have ever eaten in my life. And I walked into the kitchen, and in the skillet on the grill was the patty that was supposed to go in the hamburger that I gave my wife. My wife ate a hamburger with no ham in it. It was bread, and it was onions, and ketchup, and mustard, and mayo. Yes, she was pregnant. Yes, she was hungry. But guys, the main thing was missing. It happens. It happens at dinner, and it happens in churches if we're not careful. Look at this passage up here. Can you see this? Do you know what I've highlighted? I've highlighted in this passage every single reference to Jesus Christ 17 times. So you tell me if I'm thinking rightly about what Jesus is telling us in this passage through the Apostle Paul, what our chief, main obligation, responsibility, and job task is to do. It's to keep before your eyes what? Christ and him crucified. That's what Paul said. I came, I came to you uh, being convinced to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. That's the main thing. That's the hamburger, man. You can have a nice toasted bun and mayo and lettuce and all the other stuff. We got to keep Christ in the middle. We got to keep Christ in the center. That's the primary thing that we've been called to do. And I'm grateful that is the heartbeat of these four men that I'm going to bring up here in just a second. We've been going through a book together by Robert Thune. It's called Gospel Eldership. I want to close by reading a section um, out of that book, and then we're going to have a time of laying hands on these men. I'm going to, if you have been ordained in gospel ministry, I'm going to invite you to come down and pray with them. I know that's going to be significant because some of their family uh, is here to do that, but check this quote out. Let me read this. If a church is to be healthy, its elders must be men who are grounded and rooted in the gospel. That is the crucial gap in many churches today and the weakness that needs to be addressed. Is it not true that for a church to go deep in the gospel, its leaders must be deep in the gospel? My, in my experience, this man says, it's possible to be very old in the faith and yet tragically young in the gospel. If the gospel truly is the power of God for salvation, Romans 1, and is constantly bearing fruit and growing within us, Colossians, then elders must be strong in the gospel. And then listen to this. They must know their own heart idolatry and how the good news of the gospel applies to it. And they must have a sense of gospel fluency 
so that they can swiftly, effectively, and clearly apply the gospel to others. I don't want to embarrass this person, but I, recently I had lunch with a couple of guys. One of them was a man who was going to become an elder today. And it, it, we were actually going through this book that I'm talking about. And one of the has great study questions at the end of the chapter. And it asks, what, what's the narrative that you are spinning in your head? What's the lies that you have allowed the enemy uh, to make you tell yourself? And this person, I won't embarrass me, it was just a really open, vulnerable moment. I love that about our church. We can get together and do that. And he was, he was sharing, like, these are the lies I believe, that I am weak. I am insufficient. I am, and it was, you know, all the lies that Satan tells you. Maybe you're familiar with those lies. And I appreciate, man, what this guy did. He, like, almost got animated and leaned over the table and said, those are lies, man. You are not those things. Because of Christ, you are boom, 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 boom. And I was like, whoa, that's awesome, man. That's it. That's gospel fluency. That's being able to recognize the lies from the enemy, counterfeit gospels, these crafty little things, the scaly serpent whispers into your ear. It's able to recognize that not only in your own heart, but in the heart of others and speak clearly and powerfully about, no, Jesus declares something much better over your life than what you're believing. That's what shepherding is. That's what pastoral ministry is. And I'm thankful that these men are gifts because of that. You have already, you know, this has been a very long process. Some of you are like tired and ready to do this because it's been almost a year, but we take it so serious. There are 17 requirements that must be met for a pastor, uh, for a man to be called and be a pastor. Here they are. He must be a male. He must have an aspiration or a desire. And you see the ones that I've bolded? He must be able to teach. Those are three things you either have or you don't have. I know we live in a strange culture, but you are either a man or you're not a man, right? God made you that way. You can't change it no matter what you do. You either have the desire and the aspiration to become an elder or you don't. You are either, you are either able to teach and articulate the gospel or you're not. Those are three of the 17. The other 17 quali qualifications are all about character. And I think... I've been in gospel ministry almost 20 years now, and I have watched, in my opinion, I think most churches and organizations highlight able to teach, which you should. That's, I mean, it's vital. You've got to be able to put words together, know what the Bible teaches, and declare it and defend it to be a pastor. But at the same time, if those other characters aren't there, and if they're not growing, and they're being fostered and protected, then you're not qualified. I don't care how gifted you are. I don't care how much fruit seems to accompany your ministry. You're in dangerous territory. So we have taken the time to make sure that these men have those characters, that they're present, that they're growing. And we've heard affirmation from you. We've interviewed their wives. We've talked to them one-on-one. -on -one. We've been in multiple meetings. And so I am thankful and excited to share with you today that these men, those are their spouses, but these are the men that Grace Life Church is going to lay hands on. There's different ways the Bible says it. Some people say we're calling them. Some people say we're, we're ordaining them. The Bible says we're appointing them, which just means this. We're not making them pastors. God has already done that. We're recognizing, we are affirming, and we're going to lay hands and formally announce to this congregation and those watching that we believe God has gifted, called, and equipped these men, and we are ready to install them as elders and shepherds of Grace Life Church. So I'm going to ask them to prepare to come down, but I want to 
I want to say just by way of qualification, I think my wife said something about lay elders. The word lay elder, it means from amongst the laity, right? It means they're not on staff. They're not being financially compensated. They don't get a salary to serve as an elder. Now, three of the four men, that's true of them. Brent Carnathan, Don Drake, and Michael Wyckoff are lay elders, okay? Um, Matt Carr is more than a lay elder because he's also a staff member of this church. If you remember, we called, of course you remember, we called Matthew to be the discipleship pastor. It's been over two years ago. October was your two-year anniversary. Um, and so some of you may wonder, well, wait a minute, he's already called a pastor, and I, I, I know that. But Matt went to seminary. He got his MDiv degree. And this is really, I'll say this is your first church post-seminary where you are practicing all the things that you've learned, and you guys have been able to watch him the last two years, and I know what we're doing today is just a formal version of what you've already done. You have vetted him, you have affirmed, affirmed him, you've said, yes, we recognize God's call on his life, we recognize the gifts in him, we've seen him utilize those gifts to build up the body of Christ. So all that, just for the sake of clarity, Matt is going to be a staff pastor, obviously. He's the discipleship pastor, I'm the lead pastor. The other three men are going to be lay elders, and we're going to say more about the roles and the functions that they have in the days to come, but for now, I just want to invite them down. You guys come on down here with me, and I'm going to also invite any men who are ordained pastors to come down. We're going to lay hands on these men together, and as they're, as they're coming down, I want to show you another picture. Here are the elders that you have as of today, <laughs> there's a, a time of transition. Now, Mike Priest was an elder here, and he moved his family to Texas to uh, go and operate his own Chick-fil-A store. Huh, guess he had other things to do, but uh, now we, we love Mike, and that's what his goal was from day one when he moved here. Um, but we still have Steve Ackman is an elder here functioning. Bill Roth is a functioning elder here. Now, Cliff Patterson was a functioning elder here, but he rotated off because he wanted to focus on his school and going to uh, Jerusalem University. I think he's finishing some of that up online. Um, so Steve is going to rotate off at the end of this year, and Steve, we're going to, where's he at? Where'd Steve go? Get up here, brother. Trying to hide. We're going to honor Steve uh, at the end of this year and the beginning of next year because Steve has served faithfully for nine years at this church. Nine years, guys, he, he has served. So, so here's what I want to do. Are all the ordained elders and, and pastors down here? Here's what I'm going to do. I want to have these. I've never done this before. This is going to be interesting, man. Why don't you guys get down front here, and I want all the other people to get around them, and we're going to lay hands on them. And I'm going to ask, uh, can we turn both these on, or will it give feedback? guess we'll find out. Maybe I can just share mine. That's okay. We'll just share mine. We're gonna we're gonna lay hands on them. Oh, it did. Okay, okay. We're gonna lay hands on them, and then uh, I'm going to pray, and I'm gonna ask Pastor Jason Carr. Pastor Jason and I served for many years together at Riverbend Community Church, <laughs> and he is Matthew Carr's father. So I know this is a really special and significant day for him. So uh, I'm gonna pray, and then I'm gonna ask uh, Pastor Jason to pray. And this is your son, Luke, over here, yeah. isn't it, Michael? Yeah. This is Luke Wyckoff. He's an ordained minister. He's here. Isn't that special, man? we got two family members that are able to, to join with their, uh, 
son and father. What a combo. So let's lay hands on them and pray for them. Heavenly Father, I want to thank you for, for these significant gifts, these Christmas gifts that you are reaching down and handing to Grace Life Church today, Lord. We are grateful for them. We see your spirit resting heavily upon them. We have seen all the ways that you have already used their, their giftedness to selflessly serve others, build up the body of Christ, equip the saints for the work of the ministry, unite them, protect them. Lord, And I know they're just getting started, Lord. I'm so grateful. What a gift. What a help they are to me. What an encouragement they've been to me and my wife and our family. And as our church is growing numerically, there are, are, are many uh, more joyful burdens, Lord, and we need help. And you have answered prayers. You are structuring this church and organizing this church in a way, Lord, that's going to facilitate deeper growth so that we can be the hands and feet of Jesus and we can touch more people and reach more outsiders. So I pray for these men. Would you please protect them, Lord? Keep us united. Protect us from the temptation and the snares of the enemy. I pray that you would help, help them, Lord, and just remind them from this message today what their function is. And we pray all these things in the mighty and powerful name of Jesus. Amen. Father, I join in these prayers. Thank you for uh, giving these four men as gifts to your church here at Grace Life, for your calling upon them and the church recognizing that call. Lord, continue to bless them with loving Christ, abiding in Christ. Lord, ministering your word, praying. Lord, we pray that they would shepherd your people as David did with integrity of heart and skillfulness of hand for your glory. And we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. All right, this is the way we always do this at Grace Life. We, we have the men lay hands on them, and then I want to invite you. I want to, anybody that wants to come down and don't feel like you have to, but especially their families, extended family and friends, if you, if you want to come down, we want to just place our hands over these men again. You can just touch the, the back of somebody else if you want to, and, and I'm going to ask Bill to pray this time. You pray for us, Bill. And I want to ask you, don't let today be the only day you pray for us. There's multiple times in the New Testament where Paul and the other apostles, they invite and even beg their friends, their churches, their congregations to they say, pray for us. So many temptations are, are lurking out there. And we see it. You see some of that stuff in the world today. And it, and it grieves the heart of God and, and it, it's crippling to the church. So uh, please continue to, to pray for these men and for their families. Bill, you pray for us and then we'll get our final charge and dismiss, okay? Father God, we love seeing what you're doing here at Grace Life. We thank you, God, for your spirit moving in each and every heart here, Lord, but we thank you especially for these men who have come forward to serve as elders, Lord, to equip this body, to encourage this body, Lord, to uh, minister to your church, Lord, to uh, serve you first and foremost with love and gladness, Lord. So we lift each and every one of these men up to you, and we just ask, Father, for your blessings upon them. We ask for a fullness of your spirit, Lord God, that would just guide them with discernment and wisdom. And, uh, God, that they would, um, more than anything else, so, Father, that they would be moved by a love for you 
as they do that, Lord, that that love would be demonstrated to each and every person within this body, Father. We love you, Father. We thank you for all that you've done, all that you're doing. And God, we thank you even now for that, which you're going to continue to do as you move through our body here, your bride. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.